Hey, folks, I know there are lots of business owners who listen to this show. Maybe some of you never planned on running a business, but now here you are. One thing you've always got to keep in mind is how much you're spending on your operating costs. That's one of the first things we had to keep in mind with WTF. And with things costing more today than they did when we started, you want to keep your expenses down. To reduce costs and headaches, be smart and use NetSuite by Oracle, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. Reduce IT costs, cut the costs of maintaining multiple systems, improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash WTF for more. That's netsuite, N-E-T-S-U-I-T-E dot com slash WTF. All right, let's do this. How are you? What the fuckers? What the fuck buddies? What the fucking ears? What's happening? You all right? You holding up? You okay? You locked in? If you're new to this show, this is a good day to be here. Eddie Murphy is here. Well, I talked to him, and the recording of that is here. A couple of things before we get to Eddie, before I set that up. I, uh, I don't know if I won or not. Okay, I'm recording this the day before the Critics' Choice Awards. So today, those results would be out. So what I'm going to do now is tell you how I'm feeling heading into that because I have to do that show from my dining room. Here's here's how it's been set up to me. And if, if any of you watched it, you'll know. Maybe. I don't know what the fuck. I could, I could have a heart attack shortly after I record this. But it was going to be, I think it was me and Patton and uh, Hannah and Fortune, and Michelle, uh, Jerry Seinfeld. Do you need last names? Patton Oswalt, Fortune Feimster, Hannah Gatsby, Michelle Bateau, and me, and Jerry Seinfeld. I'm nominated for End Times Fun. I'm proud of that. Took a long time to put it together. It's a beautiful, uh, beautiful special, collaborative effort by me and... Uh, the late great Lynn Shelton, who directed it, but I never win anything. I've, I'm going to be doing stand-up comedy professionally. That means making a living at it, one way or the other, for 33 years. Come August, this August. So add another three or four to that, ish, from starting out. So 37 years, 36 years, I've been doing this. And the only real award I can remember winning for my stand-up comedy was coming in second place in the WBCN Comedy Riot in 1988, and that's what started me working. That was the last time I think I won a prize for my stand-up of, of any value. I'm prepared to lose, and I'll be, I'll be there on camera losing. So you'll, we'll, you will have seen that. And if I win, it would, be, it would break a historical losing streak for me and any sort of award so that's so that's where i'm at i'll tell you i'll I'll let you know how i feel after the show on thursday so look eddie murphy there was a time when we were younger all of us and there was nobody nobody bigger than eddie murphy eddie murphy was the biggest star in the world 
for a long time, nobody was bigger than Eddie Murphy. And I don't even think we remember when the media and entertainment universe was smaller, what that meant. But those first few movies, like Beverly Hills Cop, 48 Hours Trading Places, SNL, Delirious, the comedy special, huge global domination. And the the truth is he has stayed a vital part of show. He's had a career in show business for what, 40 years or something? But But the interesting thing about him you know, outside of him being naturally fucking hilarious. And then there was those years where people were like, people were always like, is he still funny? Is he going to be funny? Is he going to act funny? They'd see him on shows. Would he act funny? Even back in the day, he would make a choice whether he was going to act funny or not, what he would and wouldn't do. However, he felt sometimes he was sort of dickish about it. And sometimes rightfully so. I mean, I watch a lot of stuff just to get Eddie in my head. It was just very interesting to see him on old Johnny Carson clips where his talent and his his sort of demeanor was so huge. He was so effortlessly funny and he was so sort of at odds just naturally and for you know personal reasons and probably for racial reasons with the entertainment industry in a way. Just to see him with Carson and to see Carson trying to goad him into doing a Bill Cosby impression, just Eddie is sort of like, not going to do it. And deciding he wouldn't do it just because he didn't feel like it. He didn't want to be told what to do. It really was reflective of of the sort of weird expectation. There's a, He definitely played with the racial expectation of black entertainers at that time. You know, on several appearances on Letterman, on Carson, where they would constantly get him to try to do to do impressions or they would ask him what he does with his money and he you know brought to it to to their attention that these were specifically questions that were unique to black guests. And why him? But it was also that I don't think anybody knew what to do with a guy who became that big a star so quickly. But the bottom line is, man, is he had the goods. He had effortlessly had the fucking goods, man. I mean, he could riff like Robin. He was quick. He could do voices. He could mimic. He could do quick jokes. He had a long sort of deep reservoir of references. And he just wouldn't play the game if he didn't want to. He didn't give a fuck. Zero fucks. And it was sort of fascinating to see him kind of arc and just sort of continue to be part of show business, but not be as necessarily himself as he used to be or what we knew him to be when he was young. He's only a couple years older than me. He's got 10 kids. So heading into this thing, yeah, I didn't know how I was going to do it because it's a big, it's a big, um, big career, big personality. And you don't really know. I didn't really know, you know, who, who is Eddie really? And, and is he going to be funny? Is he going to be funny? Is he going to be, uh, detached. I didn't know. So the way that I dealt with Eddie was I was going to deal with him as a comic. He was a comic. He was a real comic. He was a guy that wanted nothing more than to do comedy all his life. And although his two comedy specials, Delirious and Raw, are definitely very different in tone and different different in terms of where he was with his ego and with his success, but he was the real deal. And he was start, He was doing comedy when he was like 16 years old. So I thought, I talked to Chris Rock years ago about him. 
and just about you know his time at the comic strip, his time doing those gigs in New York and Long Island, Florida. Yeah, he was a 17-year-old kid who had a gift as a comic. He had a depth to it that was almost a, a prodigy-like. And he, he knows who his heroes are. This was a, a kind of an amazing conversation about uh, people we both knew, people that you know he revered, you know, Richard Pryor specifically, and you know, his experience around that. But uh, you know, just also just kind of yeah, I I did, I'll be honest with you, before we head into the interview, I did try to, you know, kind of figure out what he was, why he had a chip on his shoulder when he was at the top of his game. But, you know, he didn't really see it that way. So there is a little bit of persistence on my part around that because, you know, I I like to connect around the anger, you know. This was a great conversation. And I was just so thrilled, to be honest with you. Like, you never know. Like I said, I, I think I told you this the other day, you know, be back in the day when we were doing this at the house, you know, I'd get to talk with the guys, talk with the ladies, whoever was on, he, she, them. And, you know, they'd come to my house, we'd warm up a little bit and then we'd get into it. But you never know with the Zoom, you get on, you do the tech thing, make sure everything's tight and then you get into it. So how do you connect? And I, I tell you, man, I, you know, Eddie got on and he was in his house He's in a, a room with wooden, like panel, wood, beautiful wooden walls. There were some candles behind him, and he was in this black, this red seating arrangement. And he was just sitting there, and it looked very specific to me. So what I'm referencing at the beginning of this is, is because that was the image I was looking at. Eddie sitting in a red uh, upholstered seating situation that I couldn't see the edges of behind him just this stained beautiful old looking wood wall of wooden panels and candles and that's uh that's how he came in and 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 this is how I came in so this is me talking to Eddie Murphy uh the movie is uh that he's promoting is coming to America with the two coming to Number two, America. That's the sequel. Uh, it's now streaming on Amazon Prime Video. Also, uh, toward the beginning of this, I mentioned Richie to him, and that's his old manager, Richie Tinkin, uh, who just passed away last week. And uh, here we go. Enjoy. Me and Eddie Murphy. Sometimes I wish I paid more attention in school, or in some cases, any attention at all. There are probably a lot of things I could have gotten more out of, like literature, and now it's probably not in the cards to go back to school and study the classics. But luckily for us, there's a new podcast called The Foxed Page that dives deep into the best books of all time. This is basically like the best possible college English class, but more relaxed and fun. No pressure of grades or needing to prepare something to say in class. It's only the books you want to read and know about presented by best-selling author Kimberly Ford. Everything from Cormac McCarthy to Madame Bovary, from classics like Frankenstein to modern hits like Lessons in Chemistry. I love Ireland, but I missed the boat on James Joyce. The Fox Page has a three-part series on Dubliners, and that's a pretty great starting point. Want to get the most out of what you read? The Fox Page is for you. Get it now wherever you get your podcasts how you doing eddie i'm good man 
How are you? I'm okay, man. It's nice to see you. Yeah, same here. I've noticed in some of your other interviews that the candles were lit behind you, but I guess not today. I, I'll, it's okay. Did you turn the candles off? He made he made mention of it. He said, "I noticed the candles were lit in the other." I don't need the candles. I don't need them. It's not video. Now, now, now you're gonna put them on. Now we have to put them on. Because if you didn't if you didn't want them, you wouldn't, wouldn't have said anything. I just didn't know if they were real. Someone said that they were like uh, a, a, a light, but it's a real candle, huh? Yeah, they just burnt down really low. Isn't that petty of me? I'm like, hey, you know, I saw you on Fallon and the candles were lit. What the fuck the is that about? The candles were lit. <laughs> <laughs> what am I? Then, Nothing? Then, then you tune in, I don't even get a candle? <laughs> Where's my fucking What's candle? What's the dry candles? What's with the dry candles back there? <laughs> so we're going to make it uh, nice for you, Mark. It's beautiful. It's, it's beautiful. More. Two more? Two more. Do you have a, what kind of, where, where are you sitting? Do you have a steakhouse at your place? <laughs> Nah. <laughs> you know, he just asked me. He said, "Where are you sitting? Do you have a steakhouse at your place?" <laughs> no, this is uh, this is the lounge. There's a bowling alley here, not a steakhouse. Really? And this is the lounge right by the by the bowling alley. So, booths and stuff. Oh, how many lanes you got? Two two lanes. Open to the public or just private or? Nah, it's all private. <laughs> Do you have to rent shoes over there? What do you got going up? The, the shoes come uh, complimentary with the, with your steak. <laughs> <laughs> how you feeling? What's going on with the? Um, how much material did you have in place before you had to you know put the kibosh on that tour you were going to do? How much material? I mean, were you working uh, shit out or what? So, but we use, I, I have, I, we have to use the word material loosely because mm. I don't even. It's not. It's not like I write. They have a conversation. You say something funny. And yeah. You're working out. Just go try it out at the club. Yeah. Well, now I'll just you know if I, if, when that happens, I just say it in the phone. Yeah. And I have you know, so I probably got you know two three hours of you know one two three line premises. I have to give some structure to. Oh, uh, I don't want to be presumptuous. I think you should just re- release those phone memos. I mean, I I think that. <laughs> <laughs> just have you going is uh dogs and uh you know what i'm dogs saying and, dogs and mayonnaise you'd be like what the fuck is this dogs and mayonnaise bit gonna be <laughs> you, you, ever get, you ever get so far th- away from those notes notes where you don't even know what the fuck you're talking oh, about oh yeah when you find it what the fuck the perfect example of mayonnaise that's five years late i found something that said mayonnaise like, yeah. what the fuck was mayonnaise <laughs> it was important at the moment yeah it was gonna kill that was gonna be my killer bit back then to, to, to the point where you wrote it down yeah yeah oh yeah yeah i i, I do that too i just make the outlines i don't write the jokes i just do the the trigger words you know the the button words now like oh okay i'm gonna remember that that's from doing standing for years and years and years well yes yeah, but that's always yeah. how i did it. i was sorry to hear about richie i don't know how close you guys were but i was sorry to hear about that oh yeah i heard about that the other day yeah man he's part of my you know my history Richie. for sure yeah right he was all do you remember meeting that guy oh yeah i remember you know back in the early 80s the, the late 70s the comic strip so where you were, you grew up where? I grew up, uh, I was born in Brooklyn, lived right. in Brooklyn until I was 11. Then I moved out to Long Island, Roosevelt, Long Island. So what was the deal out there? I mean, were you like, when did you start getting involved with, you know, knowing that the comedy was a thing? The comedy wasn't a thing back then. It wasn't, it wasn't no thing. It was like, in New York, you had Catch a Rising Star, yep. the Improv, yep. and the Comic Strip. 
and that was in the, in the city. Yeah. Out on Long Island, you didn't have nothing. It was no comedy clubs. There was one club uh, called, it was a, remember a dude back in the 70s, this Richard Nixon lookalike named Richard M. Dixon? It was a guy, he had a comedy club on Long Island. It he was did? Richard M. Dixon's White House Inn. And on Wednesday nights, he would have comedy nights. And we would, that's what, I started working out there. You did? When I was about 16, yeah. And that was the only joint? Governors wasn't there was yet? Where, where there the hell was, was no it? governors. There was none of it. There was no Eastside Comedy Club. None of that stuff was out there yet. Man, I remember going to Governors. The last time I played Governors, you could still smoke in there. Yeah, I never, like, you, I just, I never played Governors. What was the other one, too? It was a, uh, a rock place we used to play. Uh, my Father's Place. You remember uh, that place? Yeah, I know. Spyro, Spyro Gyra was there every week. <laughs> <laughs> they had had their time. So it was just you and Charlie? No, Charlie wasn't doing stand-up back. He wasn't but doing But I mean, it, he, you, he's the only, the only sibling, just the two of you? Oh, no, no. I have one. I have a younger brother who's like six years younger. Yeah? What's yeah, he do? We have, we have different dads. Oh. So his name is Lynch. Oh, okay. And what's he do? He's a, he's a bunch of different stuff. He's a martial artist. And he trains his son. son is a boxer. He trains him. You know, he does a he does a bunch of different things. So so Lynch was Vernon Lynch was your stepfather. Yes. Yeah. But I don't like to say that because he kind of raised me from when you were a he, kid, he, right? Yeah. He's, he's, he's your he's father. My dad. Yeah, he's my dad. And and how close is that version of him that you did on uh, Delirious? How how close is that? And you know what's the trip? Uh, my dad was like that when we was young, and because of that sketch or that pe- whenever I would do that uh him on stage yeah nobody would be laughing harder than my mother because it was true because my dad had a drinking problem right it'd be like it and I'd you know 10,000 people and my, my mother would be screaming and because of that my dad stopped drinking really he actually yeah he stopped drinking because of those bits well that's <laughs> a- funny but yeah he was a lot like he was just like that when he was uh, oh he my god drinks. so you had to deal with all that insanity the volatility all the time not all the time, just every now and then. You know. Oh yeah, right. <laughs> and, 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 <laughs> yeah. and you knew it wasn't every night. You knew when it was going to happen, right? You knew the tone. Yeah, but yeah. when it would happen, it was it wasn't funny. It was like you know serious, you know, scary. Your dad, yeah, scary. But when you get for a comedian, that turns into you know one yeah. of your best bits. <laughs> exactly. And also, like when you grow up in that shit, you know, there's two ways to go: either you make it funny and you learn how to figure out how to survive and manage it. Or, you know, you get fucked up yourself and you chose the other, you chose the, I'm going to make this funny and survive this shit. Yeah, I don't ever, I don't, I don't, I never drank, I don't drink. Why, well, I mean, I imagine if you grow up with someone like that, you, 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 why would you? You're scared of it. Yeah, you but just, you're either going to do, you, some right. people wind up drinking or right. not. I, I went the other way. I don't you were like, nope. <laughs> yeah, nothing. I, I want to stay in charge of me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so when you were, uh, who were the first comics that you were looking at? That made you, that brought you some, because I, I imagine it's the same with you. You watch the comics and it made you feel better about life. For me, it was the the first person I looked at going, okay, this is, uh, I'm into this and this is somebody doing comedy was was uh, Richard Pryor. That first album, of, uh, not his first album, it was in 1972. He did an album called That Nigga's Crazy. Yeah. 72, 73. Right. That album just changed everything for me. I used to sit and listen to it every day over and over and over and over. Not even, and, and the first six months I was laughing. But yeah. then, you know, you just sit and just listening to it over and over and over and over and over. Right. And yeah. which, what was the big bit on that record? Which was the bit that made you like that you couldn't get out of your head? 
the whole album, the whole album, the the wine, the, the wino and Dracula. You ever hear that one? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, he's gonna say, "Hey, hey, you fool, you people in the wonders, people in the wonders, people in the wonder, you with the cape? <laughs> <laughs> what you doing, people in the people's wonder? What's your name, fool? Dracula." Yeah, you ugly motherfucker. Yeah, what kind of name is that? Right, right. What kind of name is that for, nigga? Yeah. <laughs> where you from, true? Transylvania. Yeah, I know where it is, motherfucker. You ain't the smartest motherfucker in the world, but you is the ugliest. Oh, yeah, you ugly motherfucker. Why don't you get your teeth fixed, nigga? Shit hanging all out your mouth. Why don't you get your orthodontist? That's a dentist, you know. Ha, <laughs> ha. Yeah, that, that laugh. <laughs> yeah. So that was it, man. That was the that was the thing that blew your mind. Blew my mind, and uh, and I had I had seen you know watched Sullivan and seen you know Carlin yeah. and seen all that stuff. Flip Wilson loved Flip Wilson when I was a kid. Everybody loved Flip. Wilson. Geraldine. He had never, his own show, man. He had his own yeah, show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One of the biggest shows. Yeah, it's great. And uh, but, but everybody would be on that show. I loved him. I thought he was hysterical. But I never thought of you know when I would see him do stand up. It wasn't like I was like, oh yeah, that's right, right, when right. I saw Richard. Right. That's when it was like, yo, that's I'm I'm that. I'm I wanna I'm him. I'm right. this I'm this thing. It always amazes me too, like when I watch Richard now, like the, the vulnerability of the guy. Like the guy was so like when you learn about him, about his like you know, there was always you know, his broken heart was always right under the surface. You know, and you could always oh, yeah, feel man. the humanity of the guy. It's kind of, it's amazing. It doesn't matter what the bit was. It was just like, he was all in, man. Yeah, man. He's the real deal. And when did you start, like, what did, What else did you start putting together to, to, to start thinking about how you were going to approach it other than Richard? Well, when I first started doing it, it was, it was mostly impressions. Uh-huh. That's the easiest, that's the easiest way to, to get on stage. Right. Is doing, do impressions. If, Cause if you sound like that, that's it, you don't have to have a personality. You don't have to have any jokes, just sound like the person that you're doing. Yeah. So I was always a good mimic. So, uh, that's how I, when I first, the guys? I used to do, I would do Richard. I would do, uh, Muhammad back then. This is, this is how long ago it was. I would do Jimmy Carter because he was the president yeah. <laughs> yeah. and I would do, uh, <laughs> Uh, uh, Ali and Cosell, all that stuff that they would do on the yeah. wide world of sports. I would do all of that stuff. Al Green and shit. And, <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, outside. And I was always really, really good at uh, doing voices. And that's how you started to do the. the that's how I started getting on stage. The doing open mics. Stuff, do, doing. Yeah, actually, was was no open mics back then. Back then, they used to have. A, remember the Gong Show in the seventies? Yeah. Yep. Well, the bars used to have Gong Show night. <laughs> so you would find different gong show nights. I would go to the gong show nights, <laughs> win twenty five dollars. But you getting some? You got some chops. So when do you head into the city? I mean, how does that take place? And what's your what's your parents thinking about it? Well, my parents don't really know how much. To, to, they don't know the extent of it. Like they yeah. know that I'm doing some stuff, but they don't know that. You know, okay, by by eleventh grade, I'm like you know I'll get a, I'll go say I'm staying over it my uh, friend Clint's house yeah. and I'll go to the comic strip you know, yeah, yeah, at yeah. night and, and then the next day miss school and shit. by 12th grade I was like she didn't know how to the extent of it but they never were tripping about it because they didn't know about it then when I started making some some paper they was it was all good <laughs> and that's I started making money from it really early I got on SNL when I'm 19 but the year before that 
I'm kind of like a working comic. I'm like working regularly, all the little, whatever little spots you, you, they were back doing then. Doing one-nighters with Joey Vega, maybe Fred Stoller. You know, Fred Stoller, yes. <laughs> yes, absolutely. I did the uh, comic strip in Fort Lauderdale with Fred Stoller. Yeah. We went jet jet skiing. You and, and Fred? Jets. Yeah, he went and fell off the jet ski. And, uh, <laughs> and, uh, because the, uh, the, the, it was making him nauseous. <laughs> <laughs> who were the other guys that were there was dennis wolfberg there who was there dennis wolfberg absolutely absolutely yes dennis wolfberg yes he used to crush every night wolfberg uh who's with steve middleman steve middleman uh, no chin he has no chin yes yeah i have no chin that was his killer bit <laughs> yeah that was the whole bit he, i actually was in a uh, big laugh off in the 1980s 80 79 80 with steve middleman he won i came in fifth I oh came my in fifth Middleman came in first. Uh, I think Carol Leifa came in second. And Carol Mark Schiff, Mark Mark Schiff, Schiff came in. He came in third. Won't work on Fridays. Came, uh, yeah. <laughs> Did he, is that true? Yeah, he became Orthodox. He doesn't, he, you know, he, Mark Schiff is an Orthodox. There was a couple Orthodox guys back then. So you came in fifth, and you, but you were like 17? 18, yeah. So at 18, you're doing those one-nighters in Jersey and shit and like running yeah, around? Yeah, and, and, and by the time I'm 18, there's a little bit of a circuit. When I started, there was no... When I'm 15, there's no... There's like, you know, gong show night and bars. Then by, and by the time I'm 18, you got little... Like, a lot of places are having comedy nights and there's a little bit of a circuit that you can go and there's clubs you can go to. You can go to Philly and work the comedy works... Or you could go to D.C. and work Garvin's Grill. So you're doing all that at 18. Yeah, yeah. So you're meeting all the guys. You're meeting all the old weirdos, and you know you you you're digging. You're becoming a comic. So you're learning about all yeah, the. But you know what? It's not. It's not. It wasn't like it. It was like a. It wasn't a lot of comics. Smaller communities. Like yeah, it was a, such a small community, and it was like a like now being a comic is like a, a, a mainstream. You oh know, yeah. Everybody thing in, in show business. It's thousands of comics, but back then it was just it was just a handful. Back then it was like being a magician or, <laughs> right. or a mime or some shit. It was you it was and like, Stoller and Middleman, and uh, <laughs> no, it was a it was a few more than that. Gil- Gilbert Gottfried, yeah, yeah, yeah. He was the, the genius of that period. He was the one where all the comics would go watch him every time he was up. Did you like him? Absolutely. Still, he makes me laugh. He was like, uh, and that's also, it was specifically New York. There was definitely a New York thing. And then people eventually came out to LA. But I imagine like, I guess most of the guys who started, like Belzer was already gone and those guys were already yeah, gone. Yeah, Belzer had left. So, but so, just a year or two, just a year or two before I got out there, Belzer. And so when, when you were doing the work, you know, people were saying like, oh, that guy used to be at the club here and now he's in LA. Everyone kind of go to LA, right? Richard Lewis, all those people. Yeah, those guys were those guys were older than me, so I was gone. I didn't know that that those group of guys and those guys were established comics back. Like those guys were serious, real deal yeah. comics. We didn't even think of ourselves like. You remember Lucian? Lucian Hole. Yeah. yeah, he. Uh, I remember when I auditioned at the comic strip. He says, "Oh, I already have enough angry white guys." Uh, he told me your material's horrible, <laughs> but you've got very strong stage presence. <laughs> so, thank, thank you. <laughs> your material's horrible so how did it unfold that like so you're doing comedy you know you're paying your dues and you got what you got an hour in 1980 when you're 17 18 you got an hour no nah, they didn't back then it, people weren't doing what the hour richard made that popular 
Right. Before then, it wasn't half an hour. You had a tight 10 and you had your, your shit that you had to work in front of, you know, if you got on a Tonight Show or right. if you got the Merv Griffin or something like that. But, you know, nobody was doing an hour. A, a big gig back then was opening for people. So you needed 10, 15 minutes of killer shit. So nobody's right. doing an hour. Like Richard Pryor's, uh, Richard Pryor in concert. Right. That kind of changed the whole comedy landscape. That became... The, the, st- the standard way, the comic, you know, the, the headline comic is bringing an hour of shit. Richard started that. I remember seeing that when I was in high school. It would change my entire life. Jesus Christ. Yeah, man. Yeah, Richard is, Richard is, Richard is the, uh, the, what Marlon Brando is to acting. Richard is to, to stand-up comedy. How did you end up being managed by Richie and, and then getting SNL? Was that all or through the comic strip? Well, yeah, I was started work. The comic strip was the easiest club to get in, because uh, it, it, it's still real clickish with comics. Yeah. And back then, all the comics kind of booked the clubs, so it was really, really clickish. So right. It was impossible. It was impossible to get on and catch. Yeah. And the Tell improv me about it. was <laughs> the improv was kind of snooty, and and so the comic strip was the easiest place to to work out. That's funny because it's sort of it's still like that. The comic strip was always kind of the working class. It wasn't the celebrity hole. It wasn't like an old time in New York hole, but it was for like new young guys. It was always been like that. The comic strip. It's still like that. I haven't been. I haven't been there. In years. It, it was just a place where a lot of guys from the island, a lot of working class comics could could work. You know. Well, that's that's how we got in there. I went literally went down and got online and got the ticket and did the whole thing and audition. And Lucian told me, you know, my act is terrible, but you have presence. I I was hanging out at the comic strip, getting those uh, two o'clock spots. Two and, o'clock uh, spots. Did, Oof. Yeah, those two a those two a.m. spots. Yeah. And uh, those never those kind of spots never bother. I, I never it never bothered me to go up really really late when it was silly and yeah you know nine 10 people, people in yeah there. yeah and you're playing for who, you're playing for whoever you. You're right. hanging out with this yeah. in the back. Yeah. Yeah. I always liked that. I was doing those spots enough that uh, when they had, Saturday Night Live had their, uh, they did like, uh, when the like original cast left, they went like a cattle call. And, and you know, they were looking for everywhere. And right. One day I went to the comic strip and Tinkin was like, yeah, Saturday Night Live is looking for a black guy. You should go down there and set up an audition for you. It's like, okay. <laughs> they, they, they need a black guy. Was he your manager then? No, no. Back then, he just owned the club. He just owned the comic strip. Yeah. And uh, him and him and Bob Wax. Yeah, Bob Wax. Yeah. I went down and got got this show, and uh, maybe a year in, maybe a year into it, they started managing me. And did, did you do that just because, like, all right, well, you know, these guys know me. I work at their club. No, I was nineteen. I thought you know Richie was you know one of the a, a major player back yeah. then. He owned the comedy club, and Bob Wax was a lawyer. I was like, I'm gonna need a lawyer. And yeah, was like, hey, my lawyer, my manager together, and you know. So with that, with SNL, everything turned around really quickly, right? Like you became big quick. Uh, hindsight being twenty twenty, yeah, but uh, back then it didn't feel quick because I was nineteen. So, so you know, it just. It just felt like, you know, uh, uh, how can I even, it, it didn't feel quick, but it, it, it just felt like. Uh, this is how it happens. Yeah, this is how it happens. Right, 
Right, right. You had nothing to compare it to. So you're like, I yeah. do comedy. I'm funny. Yeah. I'm let's go. Yeah. Here okay. we and then I got that. And then, again, this is what happened. Yeah. That's exactly what it was like. <laughs> totally took it for granted. So when do you decide, like, like? Because I, I, I immersed myself in some stuff because I was watching some stuff, some appearances that you made on different shows, and it was sort of it's sort of interesting to see, like, what was the pressure that you felt almost immediately, you know, from you know once. I guess it was um, 48 Hours, which was the, the the one that kind of blew it all open. That's the first one, 48 Hours. Yeah. So on SNL, you become this huge hit with all these characters and people love you, and then you do the movie. And I have to assume that pretty quickly you realize you miss uh, doing comedy for strangers. <laughs> no, what happened was that was the way it was. That was the way that it was with that show was like, I think Chevy Chase was on there first. And it was like, you do this show and then you can get to do movies. You know, you build up a fan base and get people in the day. You can go off and make movies. And that's what, that was, that's what I thought the blueprint was. So so you knew that. So you thought, well, I didn't know that I was looking like, okay, uh, now it's time to, I got offered these, these movies. The movie was a big hit. Yeah. The other one trading places was coming. And it was, I've been on the show three years and was like, okay, I'm, I could go make movies now, so it was, I was moving on because I was like, that, "That's what you—that's what you do, right?" Right. And you're in your mind, and and I, and I think, if rightfully so, you're like, "This is how show business works. This is exactly well. This is how it works when you're on Saturday Night Live. That's what I was thinking." And you were like the biggest star in like in the world, and I just like, I can't like. It's so weird to me. Here's what I got. I got to bring up only because it's sort of bothering me that like early on when you became huge. And you were doing like Carson and there was, you know, there was something about your confidence and your, your knowledge of, you know, who you were and what you were capable of that kind of rose above, you transcended that format. But it was just sort of interesting that these guys, you kept bringing it up over and over again on these talk shows. Like, why are you asking me these certain questions? Because, you know, why are you asking me how did I get big so quickly? Why are you asking me about what I'm doing with my oh, money? about my watch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like yeah that it was there specifically this list of black questions that these guys. And what, what, what I found when watching it is that there was sort of a, a weird kind of innate bias. It just happened in the questions oh, they were no. asking. And it was it wasn't weird. It was the it was the eighties. It was a whole different world back then. Yeah. It was the old it was the old world back then. Still, like the seventies and the sixties. It wasn't yeah. that far removed from that. Right. Right. So it's like sensibilities and you know and perceptions and what you could say and what you could. There was no politically incorrect. You could say whatever. You could do jokes. You could do the the, the Polish jokes and you could say all kind. You could do everything back then. But did you feel like they were trying to box? After, you? When I, the, yeah, go ahead. Not boxed, not boxed in. It was, you know, I, I was saying, I was calling for what it was when they would, would do something. Like right. that. I never felt boxed in. By right. It. But I was like, I wasn't surprised by it because those were the times. Yeah. And I was an anomaly. It was like, the reason, the, the reason I blew up in films was because I'm the first, I'm the first uh, African-American to uh, like the character in the movie to, to to go into the white world and take charge in the world. Yeah, that was because usually the black character up until then the black character is the sidekick. Yeah, the black sidekick. But 
my character shows up in, in the first movie. I'm written like it's written like the sidekick. But if you watch the movie, he's not the sidekick. Yeah. He's the whole movie. Nick Nolte's going, now what do we do, convict? What's our next move? Where, where do we go now? Tell me now. What, what happened now? And I'm going, we go this way. We go that way. We yeah. go that. And they found that funny. Like that was it's some shit that we just stumbled onto. It wasn't intentional. Yeah. It was like the back then they used to say I, he stole the scene. He stole the scene. Yeah. <laughs> <It's> like, literally, <laughs> it is not written for him to be like that. He stole the scene. <laughs> <laughs> but but they thought that was really really funny. Yeah. They stole. Uh, that's what made me. They accused you of stealing. Me. They accused you like that. Yeah. Kid. <laughs> Well, they know they know it wasn't written like that. Right. It's like you got Nick Nolte, you know, six foot three, you know, blonde hair, blue eyed, you yeah. know, leading man, and I and, and and they're watching me in the scene, so he must have stolen it. <laughs> <laughs> it's not. It wasn't written like this. <laughs> do you think that was? Uh, do you think that perception was racist? Not at all. They hadn't seen it up until then. They hadn't seen yeah. it. So it was this new thing. So you carve this. You carve this this zone for yourself. You, you well, know. I didn't carve it. I just, that's the way it, it worked out. I wasn't carving it. It's like, it's it's not like you, the, the path that you wind up on, you carve the path. It's more, it, it's much more like that fucking, uh, that feather in Forrest Gump where you're yeah. floating around and you know, and you, wherever right. you go. And that's a, so this is where I blew, I blew in this direction. Right. And it turned out like that. When did you first, when did you start having a, like a friendship with Richard? When did you meet Richard? Oh, we never had a friendship. Richard's like, like my dad's age. Yeah. And, uh, and Richard, I didn't do, I didn't drink. I didn't smoke. I didn't do any drugs. I didn't do any of that stuff. So we were not in the same like right. zone, social, you know, uh, orbit. Yeah. But when I met him, he was uh, just as as a, an artist. Yeah, he was super super nice to me. I yeah. met him coming from Atlanta, and he was on the plane, and he was on the seat in front of me. And uh, the stewardess told me when I was getting on the plane, she was like, "Mr. Pryor is on the plane." I was like, "Mr. Pryor, he's the first. I was ah, ah. And I had my first comedy record uh, on on a, a cassette. I went up to him. I said, "Mr. Pryor, I'm like, Eddie Murphy, I'm a comedian." He said, "Oh yeah, I know you are." I said, "Here's my record. Will you, like, will you listen to it?" He said, "Oh." He, and he was sitting up. And he had my headphones on, and I was in the back watching his head. And he would go, "Ha ha ha!" And I'm in the back like, "Oh, that's great." Then I go up to him, and he said, "He said you are very funny." And all he, he said, "You remind me of me. You make me think of me." And I was like. Hey! <laughs> I did it. Then when, we, then when the plane lands, uh, he goes, uh, where are you staying? And I was like, I'm staying up uh, Mandeville Canyon. And he was like, how many give you live home? And he, he took his car. The guy drove his car. Met him at the airport. He had a white rose. Yeah. And he drove me drove me up to the place I was staying. And that, that's the, like, and imagine that's the first time you meet your idol. You meet him like that. Yeah. You meet him like that. And he, he listens to you. He's laughing at your shit. And then he drives you home and he's nice to you. It was like, wow. That was the first way. That's how I met Richard. To get that sort of validation, like you remind me of me. And then you kind of look back at, you know, you know, you're, you know, you're kind of the next in line, right? It turns out. I wasn't thinking of it like that. No, no, I, I know. I know. Of it. And, I, and, and I wasn't thinking, I, I was just thinking like, I made Richard, I made Richard laugh. Yes. And, you know, and oh shit. And and he actually drove me home. I was like fucked up. Like I was like floating from it. And then he uh we just he, like back then Richard was you the, the biggest, you know, biggest comedy star in, in movies and all that stuff. And like I said, he was older than me, so we didn't really 
right. hang out or anything. But did you have sort of multiple, before Harlem Nights, did you have like a lot of time did you spend with him? Were you able to spend time with him at all? Well, or? Richard used to, when, when Richard would go at the, play down at the comedy store, all the comics would come, come down, you know, and sit in the back and watch. He did you used to do to the me. comedy store? When I was in L.A., absolutely. If Richard Pryor was at the comedy store, everybody goes, you know, and just, just in the back. And I had a bunch of nights like that. Then afterwards, he'd be in uh, the big in the main room, late, you know, holding court, and all the comics are sitting around late. So I did a bunch of that. I was a doorman there for a couple of years uh, back in 86. And, uh, yeah, there was that, you know, I used to see Mooney all the time. And... <laughs> And Pryor would came, Pryor started coming in after he burned himself up, you know, uh, trying to put it back together, you know. And I got to see him. A I met him. Times. I met him after he had went through all that shit. Oh, really? Yeah, I didn't meet the. I met him after he was burnt up and was getting it together and all that. I never met that Richard. Richard. Right. No, when I saw him, it was rough because like he would, you know, it was you know, it was amazing about him, and I'm sure you know it. It's like you would see him struggle i mean you you could he would go up there sometimes and just like have a hard time for like a half an hour and then he'd just chip away and build that shit out like you know he would just take the hit and take the hit until it started to make sense it was kind of amazing i think that it was like that after he burned up and was trying to like still do it and do it sober right i think it was harder to put it together when he was sober it was harder to do uh, and when he wasn't sober, that's when it's like, you know. Yeah, when, right. When it's like, what the fuck? Yeah, where's he? Where's it coming from? The, the- yeah, that, but that that's when it was effortless. When he, Before he was, you know, before he was sober, it was effortless. Yeah. And that's when people, you would see Richard and they would say, oh, you'd see him do an hour. And then you see him a week later and he'd do a whole nother hour of shit you never hear. Back then he was like that guy. So when you did... Um- Delirious, and you had you know, you you worked out that hour and a half on the road. You did it Richard style. You well, just... I had to be, I had been doing stand up. What's funny was when I got on SNL, uh, people didn't like I said. There's no com- no real comedy circuit back then. No, where you're on TV and all that. So people didn't know I did stand up. Yeah. So when I popped up in Delirious, that, that was weird? like out of no that, that was like out of nowhere. It was yeah. Like, Whoa, what the fuck is this? Really? Absolutely. It was like. We, I, he does stand up. No one had a clue. Oh my God! It's like a secret weapon. <laughs> yeah, it was out of nowhere. I showed up in a red leather suit doing all this shit. It was like, what the fuck? <laughs> oh man! And then, and so, so now you've got now you that profile just raises. So now you're this movie guy, you're SNL guy, and now you're the stand up guy. And it seemed like there was a point, like. What was your what the, what was the thing with Dick Cavett, dude? Were you guys really friends? It seems like you really had some weird relationship with Dick yeah, Cavett. I used to hang out with Dick, Dick Cavett a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I, did a, I did a lot of stuff with Dick Cavett. He what? used to pop. He he would pop up. I don't even know when that was the first time. Yeah, but he would just he would just pop up like you would like be you know you know backstage at SNL and Dick, Dick Cavett would just pop up and say how are you? Yeah, you say hey Dick and you start talking. <laughs> And he would do, he was always, he would, he's a guy, if you dare him to do anything, he will do it. Yeah. So we, I got into, I got into these things where I was daring him to do, like we went to go see uh, 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 Diana Ross at the garden. Yeah. And, uh, and uh, Dick Cavett, I'd say, I dare you to go up on the stage and grab Diana Ross's ass. Yeah. And he, he just says, why are you doing this to me? <laughs> 
And then he gets up and go, walks and goes. And you're sitting. And then you see Dick Cavett coming from the side on the stage. And, the, and the Diana Ross said, oh, Dick Cavett. And he came in and he started hugging her and dancing with her. And then he put his hand on her ass and he came back. And he was, and he, so he was that guy. And so that became my relationship. I dare you to do this. I dare you to do that. Oh my and then God. once we're in SNL and yeah. a dude, uh, Eddie Grant from, uh, yeah. so he made that song. We're going to rock down to Electric Avenue. He had all the dreadlocks. Okay, so they come to Saturday Night Live and the whole dressing room is all people with dreadlocks. It's back in the early days before, you know, dreadlocks was popular. Yeah. So everybody was kind of like scared. And Dick Cavett was like, well, look at their hair. And all I was like, yeah. He says, uh, he says, how did they get their hair like that? I said, I don't know. He said, someone told me that they use goat shit in their hair to get that way. And I said, hell no. I said, I dare you to go into the dressing room and ask them, does he put goat shit in his hair? And he goes, why are you doing this to me? And then he walks down the hallway and he goes, and I'm standing in the doorway. Yeah. He goes into the makeup room and all these Jamaicans are standing around and he walks up to Eddie Grant and he goes, uh, he stands next to me. Eddie Grant is here. He goes, uh, he starts a little conversation. He goes, uh, hey, your hair is so interesting. He goes, oh, yeah. he says, how do you get your hair like that? And he goes, the guy tells him, we just do this, whatever he says, how we do. He says, really? Because someone told me that you use goat shit to get your hair like that. And the room goes quiet and he looked at him and said, no, nah, man, that's not true. <laughs> then Cavett looks at me and says, why'd you tell me that? And walked away and left me standing in the fucking door. <laughs> <laughs> So he said, and he would pop up, and he'd come to my house and stay for the weekend. Really? He would just pop up. Yeah, he would He would just pop up and be like, hey, then you're hanging out with Dick Cavett. That's so funny that you yeah. had this weird relationship with Dick Cavett. Yeah, he would pop, but I've been around Dick Cavett quite a bit. I've yeah. been to concerts, been to uh, uh, the sumo match, with a sumo match with Dick Cavett. Do you, do you talk to him still? He's all, Is he all right? I wonder if he's all right. I haven't right. seen Dick Cavett in about... 10, 15 years. Who do you hang, who do you keep in touch with from the old days? Anybody? Oh, you know, the older, I found the older that I get, the smaller my circle yeah. of friends get. Yeah. You know, and, and the friends that I do have, the, the few friends that I still do have, they're like friends from, you know, 30, 40 years. Is Fruity still around? Nah, he been out of the picture. Oh, yeah. I just, <laughs> I, I just, I'm sorry, I was watching old TV shows. That's a dude I went to high school. I went to high school with him. But some of the cats you hang out with, they're, they're old time. Like I noticed in the new movie, you got you pulled back everybody. You got everybody back in there. Sweetwater, the dude, one of the barbers in the show, the, the guy that's not Arsenio, the other guy, Sweetwater. Yeah. yeah. He's a, he's a, my, my best friend from high school. Really? We have, we're not still like that, but when we were in high school, we were like best buddies. He was in a bunch of stuff. He was on Saturday Night Live sketches and he's in he's in the very first a movie in 48 hours when nick nolte comes and gets me out of the cell that's sweetwater in there and trading places when i'm in the cell i'm saying i'm a karate man dude that's sweetwater's the one that goes yeah it's, it's a phone his limo is busted what are you ignorant yeah yeah that guy so yeah that's the guy he's in coming to america he's the other barber and he was in this one too and, and also uh louis anderson i noticed is back yeah <laughs> louis anderson in, in the dashiki yeah the movie is the movie is worth seeing just to see Louis Anderson in the in the dashi. Well, you know, honestly, it's a. You know, I was thinking about the first one, you know, and trying to put it together, like because it seemed to me that like over a period of time, even though you know everything was going good for you and you were amassing a lot of leather clothes, um, <laughs> <laughs> but like it seemed to me like the original, the first coming to America, like could have been. I always got the feeling as I watched the appearances over time. That you were you started to 
to be resentful of 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 being trapped by not your own success, but just that you just seem to be sort of angry uh, about maybe the visibility or the expectation or what? What do you what do you look at when you look back? What do you think you were pissed off about? I don't know. I don't know that I was ever pissed off. I never been. You don't feel like you were pissed off? No. How old was I? Did we talk about when I'm in my twenties? Yeah, yeah. It just it just felt like you know like like come like by the time Raw is it comes out like you it, it I I imagine it would have to have be hard to know what you were really if people were just reacting to you your celebrity or to what you were doing. You know what I mean? I imagine oh, absolutely, absolutely. That's one of the reasons why I stopped doing stand up because it be and it be and it turned become like. It was like uh, you couldn't really tell how f- funny it was. Like, am I funny or is this like you know some Pavlovian shit? You know, yeah, you right, see right. Me and you just think you're laughing. So it was like I remember one night I was at I don't know where, a comedy store, or a comic strip, and, and uh, I get on stage and the audience is like, just before you do anything, <laughs> you know, it's like what the fuck? And it was ah, <laughs> what the fuck? What the fuck? And I was like, so I don't have to do nothing. I can just stand here, you fuckers, and just laugh. And I just stood there for like 10 minutes, and I killed. Just didn't say anything. I just standing there. People were like, oh, be a little quiet. And then I'd look around, and then the laugh would come again. And for, for 10 minutes, I was able to just, you know, look around and just make a stupid face and go, and I was getting laughs doing that. And I was like, hey, you know what? It's time to, time to take a little break. Really? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It's time to take a little break from it. Right. Hey, hey you know what? I tell you what, uh, now that's, everybody has that. Now being, doing, doing comedy yeah. is, is so mainstream that the audience knows, you know, it's like, you're the comic. Think how many times you see somebody doing shit and they're not funny or they're not kid, but the audience knows this is where yeah. I laugh. It's yeah. never it's silent. I don't care how bad the comic is. It's never silent. They get something. They say something, laugh. Eh, eh. So everybody has that problem now. That's why you got to, you know, you got to go by what you you think is funny and what your gut is and what if it makes you laugh. And that's But if you try to, you know, figure these fuckers out. Because they're just laughing at whatever you say, right? And then, and then it, it's fundamentally like the one thing that used to be satisfying because you you know you know you did something you can't trust it, right? So that's got to be fucking frustrating. You know what I mean? Like you know if I can just sweep through this and you guys are gonna laugh, I mean what the fuck am I doing up here? Exactly. So I stopped doing it, but I didn't get frustrated by it. I was like, hey, you know, y'all, ain't, this is not what it was. So I'm, I'm gonna do. I'm gonna be. I'm gonna talk to animals now. I'm Doctor Doolittle. <laughs> but didn't you? Just, <laughs> but didn't you, you tried to push? But didn't there, there? It felt like there was a couple moments in Raw and a couple moments on 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 TV shows where you you were like trying to push them a little bit, you know, trying to def, you know defy them to to laugh at you, like you know what I mean, like you know, like I'm gonna act this way to see if you how much you guys will take. <laughs> oh no! If I came across like that, I was just being a real asshole at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> you gotta remember uh, the uh, uh, my shit jumped off really, really big, and I had a re- and I'm a really young guy. Yeah, so, you know, you're right. There's all of that. It's a lot. There's a lot of stuff that I'm have to navigate. It's like sure. literally have to you know go through this minefield. Right, right. To get to get to you know this moment. To get to the moment you're at now. Just to get through, you know, that whole being in your in your twenties and being famous, and you know, that's, that's sort of a, it's amazing a, though. Carious journey, 
Yeah, but you you you've held it. You've held the vessel together. Yeah. Well, that's what I was going to say though. It seemed like at that time where you like stand up, you'd had enough of it. It seemed like coming to America, the first one was almost like a like a personal fantasy film. The idea that maybe, you know, I could go someplace where no one knew me and just be a regular person. Yeah, that's that's the the premise of the movie. On the tour bus I got that idea. And it's a fairy fairy tale. Yeah. You know, wouldn't it be nice? To... But it was it was it was pass it was a a passing thought. This new one, who wrote who wrote it? Who who was uh, wrote it with you? When I got the idea, I went back and got the original writers, Barry Blaustein, David Sheffield, who wrote the original. Yeah. And uh, we talked it and got uh, like a structure. They're really good at getting your story structure, and uh, so we got that together. Then I got uh, we brought in uh, Kenya Barris. From uh, Blackish. Yeah, I talked to that guy. He's a smart guy. He's funny, huh? Yeah, we got he brought him in and he made it a coming to America ish. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> we got the older writers with the structure and he was like the new hot shot and I was in the middle, you know. And we It took four years when we got a good script. The story's great. I mean, and, and you know, yeah. it's it's almost like a all ages kind of movie thing. You know what I mean? It's almost yeah, man. It's like uh, it could almost be like a, a like a classic fantasy movie. Yeah, but it took four years to get that script like that, and it was different. It was a bunch of different stuff. What? How does? How did it evolve? What was the problems? It wasn't problems. It was you know when I, originally when I was writing when I got the idea, uh, Trace, uh, Tracy Morgan was going to be my son. <laughs> so we were writing for Tracy Morgan in an original script uh I didn't it wasn't uh that I had a son for, it was what what happened was uh, I was going I think we wanted I wanted to take other wives yeah it was like we picked up with the story and I wanted to take other wives and it was like oh no I make them hate him and so we wrote a version with that wrote a version like that that we didn't like that then we wrote like kept writing you know, we'll be, every time we finish a draft, we'd be like, this isn't right, but this little chunk right here, it works. And we kept doing that to where, you know, we had a bunch of chunks that worked. Right. And what really made it, what really made it we, we, was, uh, I saw, uh, this is when the narrative came together when we saw, uh, I saw, I think it was one of those Schwarzenegger movies, the Terminator movie where he, they made him look young and he showed up and it looked like, like, like the old Schwarzenegger. Everybody was like, yeah. what the fuck? That looks so real. Yeah. And I was like, yo, that, that's when I saw that. I, you could take that make you look young shit and we could go and make another scene where, you know, back in that scene when we were out in the club looking for chicks. We, right. we could say later on that night when we was that young special effect. That's when the whole story clicked together and we got that little piece. Oh, technology. Open the door. Yeah, open the door to the story. It's so funny that you even got, you got those twins back for a couple for 30 seconds. And we got them and that's the original sexual chocolate. Those are the original sexual chocolate members. The, the oh, band, the band? Watson's band. That's all original. Randy Watson, <laughs> all original members. That guy, that you, you, you know that guy. Yeah, he's the, he <laughs> makes me laugh the most of all the characters. <laughs> I have a lot of that in, in, in movies. A lot of my, I have a lot of movies where I'm singing stupid, singing stupid. The, the donkey and Shrek is always singing. Yeah, I got a lot of scenes in movies where I'm singing bad. So I've, I've kind of worn that joke out, but 
it still it always makes me laugh when someone's doing that. And Randy Watson is the king of it. Well, Randy Watson is like as a character, it's it's almost like somebody you know from show business. I mean, there there's plenty of Randy Watsons out there, man. Yeah, right. Yeah, especially locally. You know, every local town has a what they what do they say? You know, what do they introduce him in the first? You know him as Joe the Policeman from the What's Going Down episode of That's My Mama. You know, it's a bunch of guys that had little roles like that, and now they're in the local town and the local celebrity. <laughs> yeah, and it's like comedy is full of those fucking people, man. Yeah, it's. It, I I really liked the movie, and I thought like I thought Leslie and Tracy were were amazing. Amazing. I mean, Leslie Jones, she is like amazing, so raw and natural. And when she can just do her thing, it's like holy shit, <laughs> so funny, man. And Tracy's such a you know, it's nice. You kind you kind of got he he controlled himself for that movie. I was very happy. He focused. Yeah, like, well, he got a, he has a. Like I said, we worked on that script for four years, so he's got a, a script. Everybody that's on it has a, you know, they got a well, you know, like worked out character and yeah. got good words, and he got and Craig Brewer, the brilliant director. He got, so you got a, you know, it was easy to focus and to to do it. And your daughter's in it. Yeah, my baby girl is in it. Ah. Yeah, man. That was was that the first time you worked with her as an actress? That's the first time I, any of my kids have been in, in any of my stuff. And uh, yeah, that was. Uh, the first, and uh, I can't even put to words what's that like. What's that? You, if you have kids, you know, you go see uh, your kid at something at school. Right. And you, it'll fill you up. You know, your yeah. kid could paint something and you, oh, put it on a refrigerator and eyes get wet from that. So imagine going, going to work and your baby girl is at your job with you. And she's contributing to what's going on. Yeah. And she's doing a good job, too. Yeah. And she's got fight scenes and doing all this karate fight scenes and stuff. <laughs> every day, I was just filled up every day. That's beautiful. Every day. Yeah, man. Can I, like, can I ask you about, like, when we talk about Randy Watson and we talk about these movies, what was it that, like, made you want to tell Rudy Ray Moore's story? I thought from the beginning, first of all, I used to watch his movies all the time. You did? Cause, uh, oh yeah, cause I'm a, I watch move. I'm a, I watch a lot of stuff. Yeah, and I don't watch just, uh, just the classic stuff. I watch the classic stuff, and I and I love the stuff that's so bad it's good. Yeah, those movies, right? The movies that are like so bad they're that I love movies like that. And Rudy Ray Moore was that. Yeah, was like, yeah, as a kid, yeah. yeah. As a kid, even before I thought like that, like I love stuff so bad it's good. I was a fan of Rudy Ray Moore's movies because of that when I was a kid. Yeah. And when his movies were coming out, we would all go and we would laugh at seeing the microphone come into the shot and, you know, the certain way you would hit certain lines. And we thought it was a snare. We knew it was bad back then. As kids, we knew it was, it was horrible. Right. But it was, it was funny. And we would argue, even as a kid, I would argue that, uh, that he's trying to be funny. Yeah. And they would, they would say, no, no, he's not trying. He's serious. And I would say, no. That he's not serious. He's that he's trying to be funny, and that's why we're laughing. And they would be like, "Nah, he's he's serious." And yeah. They were laughing, thinking that he was serious. It was so bad. I was like, "No, we're supposed to be laughing. There's no way that we're not supposed to be laughing." Yeah. Even as a kid. Yeah. So I was always a, a fan of his, and uh, then I thought he had this great Stranger Than Fiction story. So we tried tried to get it done. It was back in the. In the 90s, when I first tried to get it done, I went to Rudy. It was, But no studio was making no Rudy Ray Moore movie back then. It was like not happening. Right. Then, you know, it, it, into Netflix 10 years, 15 years later. And then it was a place where 
make the movie. So it was really about a guy who was committed to his vision and made it happen. Absolutely. Rudy Ray Moore is another th- reason why he's uh, he's a uh, kind of fascination for me is is his career is like the, the exact polar opposite of my career. Like the way he came on and what he had to do and how hard it was for him to get in. And, you know, it's like we did the same the same thing. We're both doing comedy. We both do music stuff. We both, you know, went, went into the movies. But he had such a hard time getting in every And I was the sensation. And he was, you know, struggling in every. So he was, you know, fascinating in that respect. And then I had, once I got into the movie business, I had a, 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 a newfound appreciation and respect for the when I found out that he put his movies together and that you know they would finance out of his own pocket and that you know it was he was like this guerrilla filmmaker yeah so he wasn't just a nut this guy really was you know trying to get it done and so I was like this guy's a great movie it was like just like just like Ed Wood is a great movie about this in an Ed Woodsian kind of way yeah I thought his story story would be great so I literally went and got the writers that wrote Ed Wood to write the really Dolomite. Yeah, that those guys wrote it. Yeah, I thought it was great, man. <laughs> and you didn't, but you didn't really, you didn't know Rudy. Nah, different world, different different universe. I met him a couple of times, but I didn't know. Where'd you meet him? The very first time I met him was on the f- downtown LA. We was doing Forty Eight Hours. Yeah, I heard somebody say, "Get your hands off me!" <laughs> and then somebody said, "I look like Rudy Ray Moore." And I said, "That is Rudy Ray Moore." And he was real. He was up here. He must have been. A, smoking or something he was like really skinny and looked like a homeless person uh. and i took some pictures with him and shit i was like wow then i would see him uh he would do little little gigs in in la like at the lingerie every now he would play there on sunset and the last place i seen him was uh stevie's on the strip in ventura boulevard like in the 90s yeah so whenever he was another one, like we would go see Richard because it was Richard. Whenever he was in town, all the comics would go and sit around. And Rudy Ray Moore was the same with the black comics. We would go, me and Keenan and Arsenio and Robert Townsend. And when Rudy Ray Moore came to town, we would go to wherever he was and sit in the back and be fucking screaming. It was funny. It was Rudy Ray Moore. He would do. He would go up to a woman and say, "Girl, close your legs. Why eat? Why eat off your drawers?" You know, we were like, "What?" <laughs> and he would go, hop, 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 hop. "I'm gonna eat off your drawers, woman." Hop, 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 hop. We were like, ah, ah. <laughs> "What about? Like, did you ever see uh, Red Fox?" Uh, not live. Oh. No. He was something, huh? Yeah, but but yeah, he was something on the set of of Harlem Nights. Uh, on the set of Harlem Nights, you got. Red Fox, <laughs> Richard Pryor, me, uh, Robin Harris. Oh, Robin. Uh, my, uh, yeah, my brother Charlie, my uncle Ray, and it was just raucous, Arsenio, just raucous laughter. <laughs> like the, the funniest shit happened off camera. Oh. Always la- we're always laughing. Red Fox is at the center of it. Red Fox is the funniest, just n- naturally funny, sit in the room. Just naturally funny, not trying to be funny, but yeah. just funny. Everything that comes out of his mouth is yeah. just funny. Yeah. He just reeks it. That's Red Fox. He just reeks funny. He exudes Effortlessly. It. Yeah. Just just not not even trying. He could be not even in a he could not even be he could be mad. And everything he does is he says he says it turns into comedy that the whole room is screaming. He was that guy. I love that, like, you know, that you know, you're so rooted in stand up, like uh, you know, cause because I love that and I know that you met Rodney early on. Oh yeah. <laughs> and, he, <laughs> and he gave you that I, I heard about that. That to me is the greatest story. Because 
Every old comic, if you're dirty, some old comic's going to come up to you and go, hey, what are you doing, kid? You got to clean it up. Yeah. You know? And Rodney, that was weird for him to be like that with me because he wasn't like that with, with he, like he, people like Kenneth and those guys, he championed them. But when he saw me, he was like, hey, kid, you know, you got to clean your show up, kid. I'll tell you. <laughs> and then, <laughs> and, and then, and then you ran into him later? Yeah, it was before Saturday Night Live. Yeah, uh, I ran. I, I ran into him after, after like three years after that. Yeah, at the bathroom at Caesar's. Well, the first night it happened, when I told when he he told me, you know, like you know, I, I went to the the comic strip in Fort Lauderdale to do this a weekend, and uh, Dangerfield pops up. Yeah, and it was like Dangerfield's bumping everybody. Yeah, and it was like oh, Dangerfield goes up and bumps, and I'm like, Mr. Dangerfield, uh, will you watch my set? Because I wanted to go up because I knew I was going to kill. Yeah. Uh, so I go up after Dangerfield and I crushed it. Uh, yeah. Dangerfield's like, yeah, you know, kid, it's okay, but, uh, you know, you say that uh, nigger stuff, uh, you know, you do a lot of foul language, you know, where you gonna go with that, kid? You know, you know clean it up and stop, stop using that word. And blah. I was like, well, what the f- wow, thanks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> then, then I, you know, forgot about it. Then a year later, I got Saturday Night Live. Two years go by. Then I'm at Caesar's Palace in Vegas. And at the urinal, and Dangerfield comes in, and he's right next to me. And I look over, it's Dangerfield. He looks at me and says, "Hey, who knew?" <laughs> <laughs> it was like perfectly timed, like a perfectly timed joke <laughs> that he even remembered. That he even remembered right. that he told because I'm just a, one of a thousand comics, you know. That he even remembered, right. and he didn't think much of my show back then. But he even remembered, hey, that's a kid. Yeah, oh, right. yeah, he's a what? And that he even remember, and that he would come in and uh, and hit that like it was written. Right. Like, hey, who knew it was like you know, tagged it three years later. Yeah, yeah, Boom. Perfect. Perfect. So, what's going to happen, man? What's going to happen with uh, you know? There was some. I read some bit that you told about that. I thought it was kind of beautiful that you, you know, in terms of your your the sort of the 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 arc of the comedy history that you say. You said that Groucho informed Cosby, Cosby informed Richard, Richard informed you. You know that there is this through line. Did I say informed? No, no, no. no. I'm saying that. But inspired the engine. The engine of Cosby was Groucho. The engine of Pryor was Cosby. And the engine of Eddie is is Pryor, right? It's more than than the engine. It's like the engine of those other people. It might have been like that. But then when it's Richard... Richard changes it. It's not like you just become your engine because she was influenced by him. Richard restructures the the whole thing. Right. And it's not just not just me. He changes everything. He takes it from you know from black and white to in color. The whole art form. He changes. He's he he takes the ceiling and puts it up here. You know, comics used to just stand there and tell their shit into the mic. You know, with their little suede patches on their elbow, and Richard is the one that made it three dimensional and used the whole stage. And so he opens it up how you can perform, and he opens up subject matter. He opens it up. He just opens it up. He he, he makes the canvas like this big giant thing, and we were you know working on a stool, right? And he made it. As big. <laughs> yeah. And everybody just he's like, no, you could do. So oh. Richard changed. So it wasn't he wasn't just my engine. He like changed. Like I said, he's the he's Brand. What Brando was as an actor, sure. Brando showed up and changed everything. That's what Richard was. So, are you like, are you going to go back? Are we going to? Are you going to do the hour again? You think after the plague? The, my the the the, the plan was because I had stopped making movies in 2011. I was like, let me take a, a break from movies. I was making sh- shitty movies, and it was like this shit ain't fun. Yeah. 
they they giving me giving me Razzies. I think the motherfuckers gave me a, the worst actor ever Razzie. Some <laughs> shit. It was like, hey, maybe it's time. Maybe it's time to take a break. <laughs> you get the the worst actor ever Razzie. Maybe I need to pull back. Maybe it's time to pull back a little. <laughs> So yeah. I was like, let me take a break from yeah, it. Yeah. And uh, and then I, I was only going to take a break for a year. And all of a sudden, you know, six years go by. And I'm like sitting on the couch. And I'm like, hey, you know, I'm, I kind of could sit on this couch and not get off it. But, it's, but I don't want to leave it. You know, the, the last bunch of shit they seen me do was bullshit. So I was like, let me get off the couch and do some stuff and remind them that I, I'm funny. Right. And then if I want to come back to the couch again, I can do that. But so the plan was to go do Dolomite, Saturday Night Live, do Coming to America, and then do stand up, and then see how I felt afterwards. But you know, I was like, at, at then at least they'll know that you know I'm funny. Yeah, <laughs> again, because uh, otherwise, if you sit on the couch, they they don't they don't know you sitting on the couch. They're just thinking, yeah, he fell off. He ain't funny no more or some shit. Yeah, <laughs> last, last movie he did. See his last movie, Pluto Nash. Yeah, then he went and he been sitting on the couch since then. <laughs> <laughs> Wondering what happened. So I I, yeah, I didn't want to leave it there. Yeah. It was like, let me go, you know. So it might happen. No, might, might happen. I, we were literally, we had dates. We had, you know, we literally, we had a tour lined up. And mm. We had dates and all that shit. And then the pandemic hit, you know. So yeah. now it's like when the world gets back to normal and people can be around each other, put that stuff together. I still I still want, want the same plan. I did everything else. All the other stuff came together. And, you know, and now as I still wanted to go and, and do that, because I stopped doing stand up when I'm 28. So I'm, wow. like, I'm 59, 59, I'm going to be 60 in, in April. So I'm like this. I want to bookend it. I want to. It's like, yeah, I wanna, so I'm, I'm, I'm curious to see what it'd be. What, what, what will it be like? You know, because I was a baby when I did it before. It's like. When I get some structure to my little thoughts and go and get on stage and do it again, I, I want to see what it's going to be like. Wow, man. And, and, it'd, be, and it'd be cool. Book, it's kind of like bookend on it. Yeah. Then if I want to go sit on the couch, cool. Yeah. You know, pick my shots. If every, and I, when I say sit on the couch, that's a metaphor for, you know, yeah. just not chasing it. And if something comes along that's amazing, you know, get some opportunity to work with some amazing artists or something, or some amazing director, of course, you know, I get off the couch and do that. But the whole being out there doing, you know, three movies a year and doing all that shit, that shit is over. Yeah, don't need it anymore. Yeah. George, you know, I'm, you know, like I said, I'm going to be 60 in a couple of weeks. You know, I got all these babies. I got to, you know. You love it? You love the fatherhood thing? Oh, yeah, man. That's at the center of everything. That's beautiful. It's nice that you, you that you found that and you found it over and over again, ten times. Over and over, <laughs> over and over again. And then and then a, a, along the way, I realized that if you if if you put your children first, yeah, you never make a bad decision. That's nice. If everything when you get to wherever I got is okay. Well, you got to you have some crossroads moment, or you got some shit. You, okay, well, what's best for my children? If you go that route. You never make the wrong decision. And you get along with all of them? Hey, you know, Mark, I am so blessed with my kids. I don't have one bad seed. I don't have one, you know, or you're the one. I don't have any. My kids are so great. And That's great. Normal people and nobody's Hollywood jerk kid. None of it. My kids are so and they're smart and they're trying to do stuff. Yeah. I'm so blessed with my kids. Well, great, man. Really, really got lucky. Well, that's great, man. It's great talking to you, and congratulations on the movie. It was really an honor to speak to you. Uh, I've always uh, had a lot of respect for you, and it was uh, it was fun, man. Oh, thank you, Mark. Nice talking to you too, bro. Take care, man.
You too, man. Bye. Stay safe. There you go. Eddie Murphy, what a blast. What a fun thing to just be uh, engaged in talk with Eddie Murphy for an hour. The movie is Coming to Number 2 America. That's a sequel of uh, Coming to America. It's now streaming on Amazon. I will let you know. I will let you know what happened at the Critics' Choice Awards. You're going to know before me if you're listening to this. All right, uh, here's some uh, dirty rhythmic blues work blues work Monkey and La Fonda. Cat Angels coming in for landing. <laughs> 